Um, my family was a big garage sale and thrift store family. So my mom started bringing home these used videos that somebody else had abandoned, probably thinking that they were going to be on some fitness kick. Um, she would bring home these VHS uh, videos, exercise, what I would think of as off-brand, by the way. Like if I tried to explain to you what some of these exercise videos were, they were not the celebrities that you know and love, most of them. They were like random people working out in a very cheap set um, with very bad electronic music. Um, but she never really did them. But, you know, we had a VCR and I did them because I had this idea, you know, I'd seen in the culture, there's the whole Olivia Newton-John and let's do aerobics thing. And I was like, oh, I could do this. And uh, I started doing the videos in our living room and I got totally hooked. Hi, I'm Pete McCall and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard at the beginning is Kelly McGonigal. And before I get into the introduction for Dr. McGonigal, I just want to take a quick moment uh, to let listeners know, let listeners all about fitness know, that uh, All About Fitness was recently named a top 25 podcast by Prevention Magazine. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. So for all of those of you who've been listening, for those of you who left comments and feedback, a huge and hearty, a big sincere thank you. So to get that kind of recognition, to see the work that you've been doing pop up and uh, just be, be recognized, uh, I want to say thank you to all the listeners. So to Prevention Magazine, thank you for recognizing All About Fitness and what we're doing here. And for listeners, hopefully you keep tuning in and telling your friends that if you want to learn about fitness, if you want to learn the right things about fitness, uh, they should be checking All About Fitness podcast. So with that, I'm gonna, after, the, after the show, or not after the show, but after the interview, I'm going to share a few thoughts because recently... I had the opportunity to go teach a workshop. One of the things I do for work is I, I teach education, fitness education workshops. And I recently had the opportunity to travel to beautiful Bristol, Tennessee, and work with the, the personal trainers in the fitness team at the Bristol YMCA. And that got me thinking. You know, I had to fly into Knoxville and drive a hundred something miles, 130 miles from uh, beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee to Bristol. And, you know, that got me thinking about the rural communities in the States. And so as we wrap up, at the show wrap up, there's some, I have a few thoughts about fitness, exercise in the rural communities, and what we can do to help people in those communities find more ways just to move and to help them learn how to exercise. But I'm going to share that after the thought. So what I want to get into today, because this is such an exciting interview. This is really, Dr. McGonigal, Kelly McGonigal was on my short list because she had this absolutely amazing TED Talk. She has one of the top TED Talk, I think she, her TED Talk was voted one of the top 20 ever in TED because she talked about the positive benefits of stress. And when I found out that Kelly was a group fitness instructor, goodness. And actually, to be 100% honesty, she reached out to me. She, she mentioned that she listens to the podcast and she had a few ideas that she wanted to share about stress and exercise because a lot of her work's been on stress. And she had some ideas she wanted to share on stress and exercise. And you know, we ended up having a conversation about group fitness and the power of group fitness because Kelly is a, is a, is a researcher She's a psychology researcher, so her PhD is in research psychology, is understanding how humans work. So in the conversation today, this is a fascinating discussion about the neurophysiology of our body and what changes within us when we do group fitness, right? Because a lot of times we look at exercise as changing our body, which it does. Every time we move, 
we're changing our body. There's something called mechanotransduction. Mechanotransduction simply means mechanical force creates cellular change. It creates change in the cells. It's not something I made up, but that anytime you move and you put force into the body, you're creating change, chemical change, cellular change, structural change. And that's what we talk about today. Kelly goes into some of the neurophysiology and what happens to our bodies and our brains as we exercise. So with that, after a brief word from the sponsor of All About Fitness, TerraCore, and you're going to hear some really cool things about TerraCore soon. So uh, so after a word from the sponsor of All About Fitness, after a word from, from TerraCore Fitness, it is a pleasure today to, to meet and to sit down with and have an absolutely fascinating conversation with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. It's a platform. It's a balance tool. You can do a ton of different exercises on it. Guys, you've been listening to me talk about the TerraCore. You've been hearing TerraCore ads on All About Fitness. Well, I've got great news for you. I went to the folks at TerraCore. The code AAF, I changed the code. The code AAF now gets you a 25%. That is 25, 25% savings on a TerraCore. Use code AAF to save 25% on a TerraCore. What is TerraCore? Don't go to TerraCoreFitness.com. That is TerraCoreFitness.com, T-E-R-R-A, CoreFitness.com, and check out one of the coolest products in fitness. See why Men's Health voted it one of the top fitness at-home products that you should have for your workouts. Check out TerraCore Fitness on Instagram to see some amazing tricks. Again, TerraCore now is 25% off through All About Fitness. Use code AAF to save 25% on the purchase of a TerraCore. I'm Pete McCall, the All About Fitness podcast. And today, this is such a pleasure because to be honest, and I'm sure I'm going to talk about this on the intro, I was going to reach out to you, but I was so stoked to get your, your email that it really just, it, it, it made me smile. We're speaking today with Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am all right. And I, I wanted to ask a question earlier, but I stopped myself. For listeners, Kelly is well known for a, a TED video about stress. And I'm going to have a link to that below. But how long have you been a group fitness instructor? Because I found that fascinating. I didn't realize that you yourself taught group fitness. Yes, I've been teaching group fitness for almost 20 years. And I, no matter what I do in the field of psychology, I will always believe that my greatest contribution to humanity is the classes that I lead. Well, isn't that interesting? So if you allow me just a second here, because how long you're, you're a, what kind of, you're a psychologist, right? But you're, what kind of psychologist are you? Well, so I'm trained as a research psychologist. So I like to say I know how to analyze data, not people. Um, and I got my, my start studying how emotions affect the body. So for example, if you're angry, what does it do to your blood pressure? And if you think differently about what you're angry about versus try to hide your anger from the person you're angry at, how does that affect your body, your blood pressure, your immune function. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship between the mind and the body. And then as I um, got further in my research career, I also started to study compassion and empathy and social connection and how it is that we form communities of support and how it is we can develop our empathy muscle to connect with, with people more broadly. And I do feel like group uh, fitness, by the way, helps with all of that. Obviously, the mind-body connection, but also our ability to connect with others. Let me, let's take a step back here real quick. What caused you to go down the avenue of becoming a research psychologist as opposed to a practicing, practicing psychologist? I, I really like to understand the way the world works and the way that humans experience life. I guess, I, you know, 
sort of probably the same thing that might draw someone to literature or the arts or sociology. Um, I just love understanding what it's like to be a human. And I'm so curious about what it's like to be a different human being with a different life experience. And uh, I just found that that research psychology allowed me to ask interesting questions like, you know, what is it like to um, to be going through something stressful and to try different ways of of dealing with that stress? Or what is it like when you're in a relationship and there's conflict and there are different ways of, of dealing with that conflict? I found that the research just allowed me to ask questions and and meet my curiosity. But you know, the reason that I didn't stay a full-time research psychologist is at the end of the day, um, I could not suppress my desire to help people. And there is that tension when you're a scientist to either produce ideas or go out in the world and try to, um, to change people's lives. And um, that tension, I guess, was always there. And uh, I do view writing and teaching and group fitness as, as sort of the application. I mean, it's kind of therapy, right? Well, it is. And this is where I'm going with this. What, what was your education? What education did you have have to go through to be able to be, obviously you had your undergrad, but what kind of graduate school did you have to go through to, to get to where you are now to dive, dive this deep into the research? Well, I did my PhD at Stanford. Um, my primary PhD is in psychology, and I did a concentration in humanistic medicine, which is basically understanding how human factors, like your connection with your doctor or the social support that you get from your family, um, how that impacts your ability to heal. And um, and I continued to teach at Stanford and do research at Stanford, um, while also beginning to focus on communicating the science to the world more broadly. All right. I was going to ask this question later, but I'm just going to do it now because we have a lot of listeners that, that I think are, are parents as well. Your twin sister does something pretty remarkable as well. Listeners might, might not be aware of your sister's, um, what your sister does, but what what is your sister, what does your twin do? What does Jane do? Uh, yeah, so Jane McGonigal is a futurist and a game designer. So a futurist is someone who basically helps other people imagine what the future might be like. So one of her most recent projects that I'm so proud of um, she's helping technology companies imagine how their products could be used both for good and for harmful purposes to try to create more ethical technology in the future. But she's also a game designer. So she has created some amazing games like World Without Oil um, that that help people live in a in sort of an alternate reality that forces them to think about really important issues. So World Without Oil was this simulation where in the real world you had to live as if we were facing a, an oil crisis that helped people think about climate change and the environment and the impact of their everyday behaviors. Um, so she's, she, I like to say she's the fun twin um, because she's a game designer, but she's doing pretty important work. Well, both of you guys, and the reason why I ask this, and this is selfish too, and I'll get there in a second, but both of you, uh, the two of you are doing such impressive work. I'm, I'm the daughter, or I'm not the daughter, I'm the father <laughs> of two daughters. So the reason why I ask this question, you know, the reason why I ask this question, Kelly, is what was home life like growing up? Like, how did you and your sister turn out to be these leaders in your fields in terms of academia? And as a parent, you know, what, what were you engaged with growing up that kind of led you to this, this career of discovery for each of you? Both of my parents were teachers, so I think you have to start there. Um, my my mother taught in elementary and middle middle sorry my mother taught in elementary and middle school, and my father taught high school geography and history. Um, and you know, growing up, we were basically in school all the time because my parents. Um, really pushed us to engage with anything we were interested in, whether that was reading or or any type of learning experience. And I think the best thing they did that if I could encourage other parents to emulate 
is anytime we showed any interest or aptitude in anything, they would look for the way to give us a, a real, a deep experience. They would, they would push us to follow that. So when I was interested in art, they, they got me art lessons. When, even when I was interested in fashion design, which I think was not probably consistent with their values, they, um, they lied to a college of fashion about how old I was so that I could take classes with high school students when I was actually in middle school, um, they were just out there like pushing us and saying, go ahead and try it. See if you're good at this. See if you love this. Um, let's, let's just dive deeper in the way that a really good teacher would do if they notice, um, a spark in a student. And I do like that they were relatively value neutral about it. It's probably why my sister is a game designer. They allowed her to play computer games all day long and didn't you know, judge that as being a waste of time. And now she's designing games. Um, and so I think that, you know, giving your child some autonomy and agency to follow their interests and also look for ways to, to give them opportunities, whether it's in a classroom or whether it's in the real world, you know, also, you know, I remember, um, my sister and I had these newsletters and magazines that we would actually sell to people. And I don't know, it's kind of ridiculous, but my parents supported it and it gave us the courage when we wanted to follow our passions um, in college and afterward to say, why couldn't I do this? Why can't I start now before I wait for somebody else to say, okay, you're officially qualified to do this, um, to, to actually just jump in. So note to parents out there, if you have kids and you want your kids to grow up to be extremely successful, encourage, support them, encourage them to, to pursue their passions. Is that, is that it? I think that's it. And they, it was, um, it wasn't just encourage us, but you know, they really helped us find the ways to do it. How did you get your interest in exercise and group exercise? What was it that sparked that? This I can also give my mother some credit, although she's probably not going to love this story. Not that she's going to be listening to this, (laughs) but, um, you know, uh, a woman growing up in the eighties, always thinking about weight and health, like, like most women and, she would go on these diet kicks or these, in theory, fitness kicks. And um, my family was a big garage sale and thrift store family. So my mom started bringing home these used videos that somebody else had abandoned, probably thinking that they were going to be on some fitness kick. Um, she would bring home these VHS uh, videos, exercise, what I would think of as off-brand, by the way. Like If I tried to explain to you what some of these exercise videos were, they were not the celebrities that you know and love, most of them. They were like random people working out in a very cheap set um, with very bad electronic music. Um, but she never really did them. But, you know, we had a VCR and I did them because I had this idea, you know, I'd seen in the culture, there's the whole Olivia Newton-John and let's do aerobics thing. And I was like, I could do this. And uh, I started doing the videos in our living room and I got totally hooked. So my mom gets credit for that. And um, this was when I was probably in third grade, maybe eight years old. I, I got started with this. Um, I remember doing leg lifts in our basement to my first cassette tape, which was Pat Benatar, one of Pat Benatar's first um, albums. And I was like doing the leg lifts, lying in the basement, feeling like a rock star. Did you already have your PhD when you started teaching group fitness? No. So I actually, I never even went to, I took dance classes growing up, but I never went to a live like gym class, a fitness class until after I graduated college. And it really rocked my world because I knew I loved doing exercise and I was at home doing my, my yoga videos and my dance fitness videos and lifting light weights. But when I went to a gym, it was the first time I'd taken a class with other people that I, I really experienced, um, what I call collective joy, that amazing feeling of moving in synchrony with other people to loud music 
specific and doing it with a, a purpose that you're doing something that's making you strong. You know, I took kickboxing classes and I was taking the dance aerobics classes and uh, it really was a different experience than working out in my little apartment, studio apartment at home. And so when I went to graduate school, I looked for a place where I could take classes and, you know, I found a program at Stanford my first year um, where I could take yoga classes and another program where I could take the aerobics classes. And I ended up auditioning that first year because there was no other place on campus where I felt so empowered and um, so sort of witnessed in a positive way. It really was what helped me get through a difficult first year as a graduate student. And I decided that I, I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted to teach and um, I wasn't even sure if I would finish my PhD, but um, as it turned out, getting involved in, in teaching fitness was part of what actually gave me a community and gave me the courage to finish my degree. You got your PhD from Stanford, and that, that's very impressive. But how, how excited were you when you got your, your fitness certification or, or you earned the credential? Because <laughs> I, I say this story because my ex-wife, her, my, my mother-in-law, ex, her, her mother tells this wonderful story. And my, my, my ex is a kick. She's a stud. I mean, she, she has a master's in chemistry, but she was happier to get her, her, her group fitness certification than she was her master's degree. So my question to you is, did you have the same sort of experience where here you are, you have these impressive academic credentials, yet you're probably just as thrilled to get your group fitness certification? I was, I, you know, mine was the ACE exam. It was like a, you know, two or three hour exam. I had to go to a hotel to do it. It was pencil and paper. There was math involved. Um, I do remember taking that exam and getting my results and um, being very excited. Um, but you know what I remember even more than that? I remember the first class I taught after my first audition. So when, when I auditioned, I had to teach a little bit of everything, strength, dance, kickboxing, uh, stretch. We, we called it stretch. It was actually yoga. And, uh, and then I remember the first class I taught that was just mine and it was a dance class. And I remember about two thirds of the way through the class, looking at people moving and smiling. And I even remember the song that was playing. And I, I literally had the thought in my head, this is what I was born to do. Like I, I remember like, it's like somebody took a picture of that moment I remember feeling this is what I was born to do. And that was one of the most joyful moments of my life. So what is it about the group fitness experience that changes our psychology? Well, part of it is the biology of it. So, you know, most people know about a runner's high and they know that exercising can release endorphins, but there's a really interesting neurochemistry and biology that comes from moving in groups. Um, I, I often refer to it as the, the neurobiology of belonging. So when we're physically active and we're doing something that, you know, makes our heart rate go up and we're sweating a little bit, wherever you're doing that, you know, on your own, out in nature, you're going to have certain changes in your brain and body that make you feel better. You'll have a bit of an endorphin rush. You'll have increased levels of dopamine and adrenaline that give you that energy that make you feel more optimistic. Um, and you'll also show an increase in a um, neurotransmitter we don't talk about a lot, endocannabinoids, which is the neurotransmitter that cannabis mimics. And it's responsible for that feeling of like, I could do anything. When you're active and all of a sudden the pain recedes and it feels like you could do it forever and you're just so optimistic about the future, uh, that's driven in part by endocannabinoids. So you've got all this stuff going on when you're exercising. And if you're exercising really hard, you're probably also releasing oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone, um, but it's also a hormone that helps us deal with physical stresses. And so you've got this chemistry going on. And if you happen to be moving 
in synchrony with other people, or if you are cooperating with other people, you know, doing like a team exercise, or you're doing movement with a shared purpose, all of that is enhanced. And all of these neurotransmitters, the endorphins, the oxytocin, the endocannabinoids are also um, neurotransmitters of social connection. They all make it easier to trust other people. They all make it easier to feel empathy and connected and to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. So I think what I love about group fitness is it's harnessing this natural neurobiology of belonging that happens to take place whenever we exercise and get our heart rates up and we're doing something difficult. Like it's already there. And then you're putting yourself in an environment with other people so that you can start to really feel like a community. You can really start to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. And I experience the, this the most strongly when I'm moving to music because music can enhance all these effects too. So something like a cardio dance class or a cardio kickboxing class with a really killer soundtrack, you know, the, the feeling that I have in those moments is one of a, you know, it's a combination of euphoria and a sense of transcending that, that sense of self that can be so tight and confined where it's all thinking about me or thinking about, you know, what's wrong with me, the self-criticism, the self-focus. It's just an escape from all of that where I I really sense myself uh, as a part of something bigger than myself. That's why I love group fitness. And I got to tell you, there's nothing like being the instructor where you are watching 20 or 40 or, or 60 people have a similar experience. It's like, I don't know, it's like people just throwing glitter bombs at you. It's how I feel sometimes in a group fitness class. Like I'm just the recipient of all of this collective joy. Well, what formats do you teach? I didn't ask. I mean, you, you mentioned yoga a little bit. You mentioned dance, but what, what formats do you teach and, and what are your favorite formats to teach? My favorite format um, has always been and probably will always be some kind of dance fitness. Right now I'm teaching a few programs. Um, I'm teaching Bali X, which is a combination of Bollywood and Bhangra and Indian pop and Western um, pop dance fitness and 305 fitness, which is a really interesting and fun brand based in New York city. That is sort of like, um, you're dancing at a nightclub, but you also do a little bit of strength and kind of boot camp training in the middle of it. Um, and, uh, and I also just teach sort of generic cardio dance in my own choreography. But over the years I've taught everything you can imagine, a bunch of martial arts formats. Um, I focused primarily on yoga for a long time and actually used to lead yoga teacher trainings. Um, I've taught, uh, old school step and strength training. I mean, you know, part of the joy of being a group fitness instructor is when you fall in love with the program, you know, do it for a little bit and then you learn how to teach it and share it with others. Um, but dance is my favorite because of the role that music plays in, in amplifying that endorphin rush and helping people feel connected. Well, and what I love about, and, and, and I need to ask you this question because I don't know if anybody would have, has asked it of this way before, but when you're preparing for your TED, when you're preparing for your TED talk, and for listeners, I'm gonna have the link below because Kelly just you, you had one of the top what one of the top twenty most popular TED mm. talks of all time, and and yeah. Kelly's TED talk is about stress, and you reshape, and this is why I wanted to have you on because exercise is positive stress. And, and if you learn how to use it correctly, it makes you stronger. So how stressful was it to prepare to present at TED? You know, I, I know public speaking is supposed to be really stressful. The hardest thing for me, it was my first trip to Europe, and I'm afraid of flying. So for me, the big stress was saying yes to doing it and having to get on an airplane and, uh, and flying across the Atlantic Ocean. Once I got there, you know, getting on a stage and talking to a few thousand people was sort of like, eh, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, and I think that it goes to the point that, 
you know, when we talk about being good at stress, it's not like there are things that, that are objectively stressful. Well, there are some things that are objectively stressful, but a lot of times we have this story that being good at stress means you're really good at something like public speaking, or you're really good at high stakes negotiations, or you thrive in a crisis or in conflict. And, you know, I think it's really about being able to do things that matter to you, even when it's difficult, or even when you aren't sure you can handle it. Um, and it's about making choices that are consistent with your values. So for me, what was stressful was deciding, you know, I had something to say that maybe could help people. And TED is an amazing platform. And if I thought that I could share an idea with the world that might actually change people's lives, I ought to be willing to embrace the discomfort and my fear of getting on an airplane. That was the hard part. Well, let's, let's stay there because exercise is discomfort, right? I mean, the yes. whole purpose of exercise is we're creating discomfort. So would you say that people that exercise, there are people that, that exercise regularly, do you think they're training their stress muscle, for lack of a better term, to be able to handle more stress? Because if you, how long had you been teaching group fitness before you were invited to speak at TED? Oh, uh, 13 years. But so, okay, so let's get into this because there are so many different ways to answer that question. And I don't want to neglect any of them because there's the psychological aspect, which I'll talk about first, but there also is the neurobiological fact that when you exercise, it actually changes your brain and your nervous system in ways that make you better at stress. So I think there are two different conversations to have. The first is that idea that you're training your stress muscle. And I will tell you how I actually overcame my fear of flying was, um, to put myself in a fitness experience that reminded me the most of how I feel when I am on an airplane in turbulence. Hmm. And it was, um, indoor cycling classes. When I first took an indoor cycling class, there was no airflow. There was no fans in the studio. It was so hot. I couldn't breathe. Um, it was hard. It was a type of endurance training I wasn't used to. I mean, I wasn't a runner or a cyclist, so I wasn't used to doing the same movement over and over and over again. It really challenged my heart and my lungs in a different way. And, uh, I hated it. I wanted to get off the bike after the first two minutes. I couldn't believe I had to stay there for an hour. And at some point I realized that's how I feel on an airplane. I can't breathe. My heart is pounding when we hit turbulence and I can't believe I can't get out of here. I can't believe I can't escape that kind of panic and and I'm trapped. And I actually started going to cycling classes as a way to practice for getting on an airplane when I was too afraid to fly. And, uh, I would, you know, I would tell myself like, like I'm doing this for a purpose. And I ended up making a playlist of music that I would listen to in cycling classes. I call it my turbulence playlist. It's actually on my um, my phone. It's called uh, "I'm So Excited," which is sort of a joke. Um, and whenever we hit turbulence, I put it on, and it's songs that I, you know, would cycle to. These high energy songs, um, including the the fabulous song "Let's Hit Turbulence." Uh, we hit turbulence, which is pretty fun to listen to when you're in turbulence. <laughs> and um, I would like pretend I was on a bike, and my heart is pounding because I'm doing something hard, and it's okay. And it's okay that maybe I'm breathing a little bit um, more because that's how I feel when I'm in a cycling class. And it literally trained me to just embrace the discomfort and go with it. And that's, that's something that I think almost any form of movement that's hard um, can train you for, whether it's lifting something heavier than you ever thought you could and what it takes to do that, or whether it's continuing to put one foot in front of the other when you're training for a marathon. This is one way to get better at stress, is you learn that you can continue to do something that feels difficult in the moment, but you have a purpose for it. And so you're going to keep going or you're going to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. That's the psychological side, your neurochemistry and how it affects your biology 
is literally changing the structure of your brain and the function of your brain and body so that when you face something stressful, you have more courage or your brain understands how to take care of itself. Um, and that's, and that has almost nothing to do with the psychology. It's literally about the fact that you are using the body the way we, we were evolved, the way that we're adapted to use our bodies, which is to do pretty difficult things a lot. And that produces a brain that is ready to engage with life. Let's talk a little bit about the flow state and how that group experience, that group movement experience helps create those flow triggers that leads to that positive experience. Yeah. So there are a lot of um, different type of flow experiences that you can have during movement, right? There's that classic runner's high when you're out running on your own. There's the flow state people often experience in nature um, that really is this kind of transcendent connection to, to life itself and the environment. Um, and there's the flow state you can experience in a mind-body practice where you're so fully immersed in what you're doing and how you're doing it in the present moment. And then, you know, my favorite flow state is that flow state where you feel connected to other people and to music, which is its own unique kind of flow state. You know, sometimes referred to as groove, where music gets in your brain and compels you to move in synchrony with it in a way that often produces a, a real high. And then you have that additional flow state that comes from your your body sensing your connection to other bodies moving. We get we get our own unique high from that. That's probably connected to you know, the evolutionary advantage of being able to work together to do difficult physical tasks that if you're working in labor um, with other people in synchrony, you, you get this high. It's sort of a payoff because you can do things that are, are harder than you could do on your own. And um, I do experience that in group fitness. It is a, a unique kind of flow state. And I'm always encouraging people to, to find the, the state that feels like the antidote to, to whatever their mind's sort of worst habits are or whatever is, is missing in their life. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people for whom group fitness is not going to be the thing. Um, that, you know, for them, the piece that really brings a sense of, of wholeness is being in nature or being alone. Um, or it, it's a different experience. And just because I love group fitness doesn't mean I think everyone should go out and do their step touches, you know, and, and hamstring curls. Um, but I love that you mentioned that, that some of the music that we use in, in Bali X like there's something unique about the music and the movements. And that's because a lot of the movement forms are coming from things like Bhangra and folk dancing, which are these cultural traditions where basically people noticed what you spontaneously do when you're feeling joy, the, the movements of celebration and the movements of connection and turned it into formal dances and the music reflects it. And uh, I do think it's one of the reasons why, you know, I teach in communities, some communities with a number of people who grew up in India and it's like their own natural tradition, but even people who'd never heard this music before, they immediately connect to the fact that it seems to be a vehicle for expressing joy and for practicing the social connection of celebration. And, uh, and you know, it's not limited to something like Bollywood music or Bhangra. There are so many different cultures and traditions that do that. Um, and it's about sort of finding the one that speaks to you. What would you want group fitness instructor? How, how does group fitness instructor Kelly influence researcher Kelly? I actually, I think of it as being the other way around. So, you know, you asked originally, why did I go into psychology and want to do research? Um, my interest is how do I, how can I be more effective? So my goal is that you know the classes I teach create belonging and hope um, and connection and empowerment. So the whole purpose of research 
is not to be good at research, it's that I can be better at, at doing the actual work. And so I really think it, it's mostly one direction on that way. I want to know about the neurobiology because I want to know that when your heart rate goes faster, that when your heart beats more, it actually leads to more of the endorphins and the endocannabinoids, let's say, or the oxytocin that's going to help people bond. And so I'm going to include in my group fitness classes, some sprints where people are going to work harder. And maybe they didn't know they wanted to work that hard, but I know that three minute section where they're working harder than they usually would is going to change their physiology in a way that when we then take a break and I say, like, go high five someone else and tell them how great they did. It's, it's deepening that connection even more than if we didn't do that extra push. Or when I think about the songs that I'm choosing, you know, I'm interested in the research on the psychology of music because I want to choose songs that have lyrics that are going to reach in, into somebody and make them feel like the best version of themselves when they're, when they're moving. So I don't know. Group Fitness Kelly does not influence researcher Kelly, um, except to maybe want to ask questions that make me more effective at, at creating life-changing experiences. And then finally, as we're wrapping up here, how powerful is music, Kelly? I mean, you, you've referred mm. to it a number of times, but when I when I choose music now for, for classes I teach, and I'm doing more conditioning classes, and I do teach cycle every now and then, what what I really look to is I'm in my late 40s. I look for music in the nine like remixes of 90s and 2000s <laughs> music, because and even some 80s, because I'm trying to create an environment where I want it to be retro. I want people to get lost in the music, and I purposely sometimes say, we'll tell somebody or we'll tell the group that this song came out in 1996. So right now I want you using your 1996 legs. You know, I try to put them in that, you know, I want them to kind of, I want everybody to be transported back to a time they felt strong, powerful. You know, how does music create that? You know, how does music influence not only movement, because movement, we're creating a whole neurochemistry dump in our body, but, you know, how does music change that as well? Yeah, well, so one of my favorite interviews that I did for the book was with Costas Karagiorgis, who is a, a sports psychologist who specializes in helping athletes choose music to pump them up and train to, and also helps create some of the workout playlists with a lot of the, the streaming services that you might know. And uh, he totally schooled me on the psychology of music as it relates to movement. And there's so many different ways that, that music can affect people's experience during movement. One is just the, the nature of music itself. You know, there's a particular tempo between 120 and 140 beats per minute that seems to energize people and make them want to move and allow them to work harder and to enjoy it more. So, so sometimes it's as simple as tempo and their qualities, you know, a relatively higher pitch, um, uh, a certain type of, um, of rhythm and, and quality that just encourages people to move. And a lot, if you look at streaming playlists, you'll see a lot of songs like that. A lot of pop music, um, is like that, but then there's also the meaning. And you mentioned memories, um, that, that music gets into our brains, particularly music that we enjoyed when we were teenagers seems to have a very powerful effect on our sense of self. And sometimes the music will, will pull out memories and, and qualities of who you were at a different time that can create a really emotional experience. Um, there's also lyrics, you know, the, the lyrics that are about determination or perseverance or being beautiful or being strong, that lyrics can have a, a very big impact on how you feel. And what's so fascinating is when you're moving your body in ways that are consistent with the lyrics you're hearing, it's like the most powerful medicine for sensing yourself as having those qualities of, of being someone who is determined or being someone who is beautiful, who is strong. But I have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on using music. That's mostly about nostalgia, especially because I, you know, I teach people from 
you know, late teens to late eighties, maybe, um, in terms of their age. And there is something very powerful about continuing to expand your repertoire of the music that moves you. It's one of the greatest joys in life to stay current with popular music. And uh, right now, my senior ladies are loving Lizzo. And Lizzo (laughs) is bringing something out of them that is of this moment. And it's a particular way of being alive. I think that um, too soon people give up on pop music um, or they, they have their one genre. And I think that one of the greatest psychological strengths I have is I love everything and I will dance to country and hip hop and rock and roll and electronic dance music, you name it. There's some part of me that connects to why that music is popular and powerful. And uh, I think that's a strength worth developing because it, it gives you so many more opportunities to experience joy and to connect with others. Well, no, that's a fair point, and, and you know, I may be mis- misstated. I don't. The, the entire playlist is not nostalgic, but I do drop. You know, I'll drop two or three songs in there, just like, and I'll go on to the top hits, and because I don't say that current on the top hits, surprise, surprise. But I will look up and see what the most popular is on on the downloading service I use, and I will drop in a couple of those songs. So, I, fair point, and I love the pushback. I always love when when guests push back a little bit because it that's that right. That's how we learn, right? Is you're like, hey, think about it a little bit differently. Now, what was your final? Final question here as we wrap up. What was your favorite exercise tape growing up? When you when you were coming back in, if you had a bad day at school, if you just wanted to get, you know, young Kelly wants to have a great workout, what was your go-to workout video? Uh, the original Jazzercise. And it is has everything I love about exercise. And you can actually see it on YouTube now um, or on Facebook. It's funny. People pass it around. It's almost like a joke. Like, haha, can you believe it? But you know what? Um, Jazzercise encouraged you to sing along. It was using music of the day. It was movements that were intended to make you feel like a dancer. And there is, for me, that's always what I want to come back to at the end of the day is, is moving and singing along, lip syncing for my life, um, and feeling like I'm expressing whatever is good in a song, expressing it through my body and doing it with other people and synchrony with other people. Um, that's still my favorite joy. And, uh, there's no joke about that, you know, sort of every, every group fitness program that, that really speaks to people is doing it from a place of being of the moment. And I think it's wonderful to go back and look at all these old exercise videos that were so popular, sweating to the oldies, you know, whatever they are. And like, they were really speaking to something real in that moment. And the the best programs now are doing the same thing. And I'm sure we'll mock them in 20 years. Um, but I am willing to fully embrace them wholehearted enthusiasm. No, I, I think that's awesome. But you know, you have to understand when, when I'm with instructors at various conferences, you know, sometimes that conversation comes up and we talk about how influential, influential those tapes were. And we're at, you know, I'm going to grab this conversation offline, but we're at this point now where for years, Kelly, for years, the, the, the conference presenters and the fitness instructors that taught other trainers were the ones producing the videotapes and the, and the workout tapes. And now we've shifted to now the leading people in the industry are all Instagram personalities, and yet they don't do what myself and others do, going out and educating other trainers. So we're at this interesting little dichotomy right now of, of just in terms of the education programming. But that's a, that's a whole different conversation. But I just think that's an interesting note that for years, the leading influential people in, the, in fitness were the people with the videotapes, and now that's completely changed. Now, assuming that most people can't enroll in Stanford and take your classes, how can they get more information about the type of work you're doing? Uh, and then I'm online, my name, kellymcgonigal.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. 
Um, and I have playlists on Spotify that include all the playlists for my classes. So even if you can't dance with me in person, you can put on the playlist and um, dance around your living room with me in spirit. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you. I, I again, I, I am so stoked when I got that email and, and you said you're a listener. I, I literally was like floating five feet off the ground. So uh, it is such a fun conversation. And I hope to have you back on because honestly, I could continue this for a long time, but I just want to be respectful of people's time. And, and most importantly, I'm going to be respectful of your time. So really, I really appreciate this. And I, I certainly appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, and thank you for all the conversations that you're facilitating and hopefully encouraging people to move in ways that, that they find meaningful and joyful. So before I get into my thoughts on on that interview and, and kind of tying in what I was talking about with Bristol, Tennessee in the opening, I, for those of you who want to learn more about exercise and specifically that you want to learn about the types of exercise you can be doing to enhance your quality of life, pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I'm not trying to push a lot of vitamins. I'm not trying to tell you how to hack your body. I'm not doing a lot of that nonsense. Uh, but if you are looking for more resources about fitness and exercise, especially over the, over the age of 40, please check out Smarter Workouts. I put a lot of information in there that can really help your quality of life. And on that note, I really want to, I'm going to have a link below that in the show notes. So you can go to the show notes and you'll have a link to, to where you can pick up the book. And on that note, I want to say a huge thank you to listener Amy Connell. And Amy, I think I'm, I'm saying your last name right. But Amy sent me a great little shot via Instagram. Uh, I've had Ter- TerraCore as a main sponsor of the show. Sam Bells have been a sponsor of Hyperware. And Amy sent an awesome picture showing that, that, that she showed me using her products. So, Amy, I really appreciate that. And, and for those of you out there, if you've picked up a TerraCore, if you're using Sam Bells and, and you got them because you were uh, motivated by this podcast, please, by all means, take a picture on Instagram and link me. And I'd love to see you using that. And so with the sponsors. Uh, my Instagram handle is Pete McCall underscore fitness. That's Pete McCall underscore fitness. So, Amy, thank you for being a listener. And uh, thank you for sending that, fo- that picture. But the reason why I mentioned Bristol, Tennessee in the opening after talking with Kelly was one of the things that, that Kelly and I were talking about is how do we make exercise a habit? And that's exactly the conversation I had with, uh, with Don and Rick. Don is the group fitness manager in Bristol or the, uh, the facility coordinator at the YMCA in Bristol. And Rick is the uh, CEO of the YMCA uh, association there in Bristol, Tennessee. And what we're talking about is the challenge of helping people in smaller and rural communities like Bristol, Tennessee, learn how to make exercise a habit. Because just like Kelly is talking about, there's a lot of a lot of things that go into exercise and, and people create these barriers, right? And it's one thing if you're in a major city and you walk places and you're in an environment where you have sidewalks, you have parks, and you have access to this. And if you go in any major city, you have an Orange Theory Fitness here, a Soul Cycle there, a, a gym there. You have plenty of options. But in some of these smaller communities, number one, you, you just don't have that many options. You don't have a fitness studio on every freaking corner. And number two, even for people that, that are active, there aren't a lot of facilities to use. You don't have bike lanes. You don't have parks. One of the guys in the, uh, one of the, guys in the workshop was a retired sheriff's, uh, re- retired sheriff's officer who uh, was also a cyclist. And he talked about how he doesn't ride his bike anymore on, on the roads around there because it, the traffic has gotten so dangerous and there are a number of people um, in the rural area who are under the influence of drugs. And you know, he knows that as a cop and he just decided it wasn't safe to ride his bike. So here you had somebody who's being active, 
but I don't know if there's a solution to that and I don't know where I'm going, but the, the whole, the thing that got me thinking about it is how do we engage people? It's hard enough to engage people in cities, right? In major cities and urban areas where we have a lot of solutions. But when we look at these smaller communities, whether I've been in Bristol, Tennessee, Delta, Pennsylvania, Delta is a small community just a little bit north of the Maryland, uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania line in Pennsylvania. And I went and did an install there at a wonderful little model, I think it was Model A Fitness in Dental, Pennsylvania. That was one of the coolest little fitness facilities I've seen in the country. I went to a gym in Alabaster, Alabama, just, uh, just in time, I think. Just in time fitness in Alabaster, Alabama. So it's really interesting to go to these smaller market gyms and studios and see how they're doing it. And it's making me realize that those of us that live in cities and those of us live in urban areas, we have to appreciate the fact that we have so many resources available. And for those of you that might be in these smaller markets, that might be in these smaller communities, one of the cool things about social media is that you can look for other people that may share your interests. And I urge you to do that. Look on Facebook in your local community. Look for other people that are active. Because that's one of the things I was talking about with the YMCA folks is how do you engage people to bring them into the facility? You know, how do you get, because people think of exercise as work, but just as Kelly and I were talking about, once you start exercising, especially if you go into group exercise, exercise becomes fun. So when we have these smaller communities like Bristol, Tennessee, so many people there might look at exercise. I don't want to do that. That's hard. That's scary. You know, I'm going to get, but when you heard what Kelly and I were talking about, exercise is like a drug. You feel awesome doing it. Just going out and moving, just moving your body. It doesn't matter if it's on time to the music. You know, I'll bet you Kelly would say this. Any instructor will tell you, it doesn't matter if you move with or without the music. Just come in and move. Take class with us. Good exercise instructors welcome the newest people into class. Good group fitness classes welcome. They embrace the newest people. One of the coolest things about the CrossFit Me community, one of the absolute best things about the CrossFit community is CrossFit embraces its newest members. Everybody's there to succeed. And so when you see these smaller communities, one of the things that, that makes me think about is why don't we message exercise differently? Why don't we message? Because you get a community like Bristol. If we started, to, you know, Bristol, you know, what the sheriffs, the, you know, the, the sheriff's officers were telling me was that community has been devastated by opioids and, and by pills and by other drugs. You know, but if you tell people in these community, exercise isn't about what you look like, but it's about how you feel. You know, that's one of the main things about my podcast is exercise makes you feel better. Exercise enhances your quality of life. And I wish we could get our arms around communities like Bristol and Delta and Alabaster and these smaller communities and help people just have them listen to, to this, this conversation today that it's not about what you look like. It's about what you feel like inside. The true power of exercise is it gives you the strength to do the things you never thought you could do. I'll bet you that Kelly, when she started her program, when she started her education program, I'll bet you that Kelly never ever thought she would have the ability to stand in front of her room and have a, get, get a group of full of people moving and sweating to the same, at the same time. That gave her the confidence to get up on a stage and give a TED Talk. You know, she kind of brushed it off a little bit, but I firmly believe that gave her the confidence to get up there. Because you've, and, and any instructor will tell you this. If you get good and stand in front of a room of people and tell them to jump and sweat, you're good public speaking. And for those of you that want to get better at public speaking, if you have a job that, that you need to do some public speaking and, and, and it's very challenging for you, Yes, Toastmasters and Association can help that, but start taking group fitness. And even better, learn how to teach group fitness. I've seen some extremely shy people come out of their shells and turn into just phenomenal instructors because they found their voice. 
So I'm not sure where I'm going with all this, except there was an interesting juxtaposition to have spent the weekend working with a community, working in a community that doesn't have many fitness resources. And I think one of the things that keeps people from, from starting exercise is they're so focused on appearance. But what we need to do, and thanks to people like Kelly, thanks to other people out there and people I'm bringing on all about fitness, is we're trying to change that conversation. We're trying to make it more about exercise makes you feel better. Exercise gives you better strength. It gives you better mental acuity. It gives you better cognitive ability. Those are the real benefits of exercise. If you want to have six-pack abs and a nice round peach-shaped bum, well, good for you. If that's important to you, if your appearance is the most important thing in the world to you, and that's why you exercise, good for you. Then you're doing something important. But for everybody else, for those of you exercise can change the way you feel. Embrace it. Use it. Get into that. So with that, if you have any comments, please reach out to me. My email is Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And if you're going to email me, do not begin your email with hey. I'm going to say that again. Do not begin your email with hey. Proper greeting in a business format is dear, Mr. or Miss. I do not reply to emails that begin with hey. So if you're going to write to the show, please use proper and appropriate professional business correspondence. Because if you reach out to me and start your email with hi or hey or whatever, I'm deleting it. And you could have a great guest. And I'm sorry, you could have a great product, a great idea. Look up professional correspondence. Look up how to write professional correspondence. That's not my job to teach you that. But if you're reaching out to somebody to pitch your idea, to pitch your book, to pitch being a guest on a show, whether it's mine or anybody else's show, Use appropriate correspondence because anything that begins with hey or anything that begins with Pete and we don't know each other, if you call me Pete and we haven't met, I'm sorry, I'm deleting it. You can address me as Mr. McCall or dear Mr. McCall or dear Pete, but beginning something with hey, begin, no, use professional correspondence, please. Those of you that have done that, I've booked your guests. It's been awesome. But for those of you that reach that right in, it's just like, hey, Pete or hi, Pete or whatever, forget it. I hit the delete button. Some of them, I will. if they have a, a decent or compelling guest or story, I will write back and tell them why they're not going to be a guest. You know, but hey, just that's just a little word, a public service announcement. Please do not let professional grammar, please do not let professional writing dive. I know we're in the land of emojis and all that nonsense, but if you're reaching out to somebody you've never met before, use proper business correspondence. Whether it's to me or anybody else, that's just a little bit of advice. So with that, thanks for stopping by. And I look forward to having you join me for future episodes all about fitness.